Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Nick Hanfield-Jones, and co-hosting with me today is Connor Chato. And today we have a very special guest here. His name is Ignacio Moya, and he is a PhD student of philosophy. And today he's going to tell us all about pessimism, but not pessimism as you might think. So he's going to tell us all about a very unique way pessimism is in philosophy. So welcome to the show, Ignacio. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, a big pleasure to be here. Thank you. So to start off, why don't you just tell me a bit about your sort of PhD work, your sort of like focus in your PhD? Um, Yes. So just like you said it so well, my PhD work is based on philosophical pessimism. And that's related to fundamentally the work of Arthur Schopenhauer, who is the major figure in the whole philosophical pessimist tradition. So that's the area that I'm working on and dedicating all my time to to pessimism. So we're going to get into Schopenhauer in just a sec because there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. But first of all, why don't you tell me a bit about what um, the broad concept of philosophical pessimism is? And uh, specifically, could you contrast that with how we might think of pessimism in our day-to-day lives? Right. So that's very good. Uh, You mentioned it in your introduction, right, that pessimism in everyday conversation is taken to be a sort of psychological trait. So there are people that are pessimists and there are people that are optimists. And a pessimistic person is usually someone that thinks that everything is going to turn out badly, it's going to turn out wrong, Um, don't do this because it's not going to work out, and, you know, they always Uh, have bad energies. But in philosophical terms, pessimism has a different meaning. Um, So pessimism in philosophy is just a statement about the nature of existence and the world. So what pessimism says is that the world at its most fundamental level is suffering. This is a bad world. Terrible things happen. And um, right, we can never really escape suffering, desires, and wanting. So that's what pessimism is in philosophical terms. So you might be a pessimistic person in psychological terms as well as a philosophical pessimist, but they're not necessarily related. So, for example, it's possible to be like a psychological pessimist, but be philosophically optimist. Um, I guess or I can to, imagine to, that or happening. Or to view, to sort of see philosophically that the world is optimistic. Right. I, uh, I think that's possible. You could have someone that says, well, uh, you could have a psychological pessimist that might say, you know, mm-hmm. the world is a great pay- is a great place for so many people. Right. Everybody's having a great time. I know that the world is good. It's just so bad for me. Right. So that would be right. maybe a philosophical, uh, sorry, a psychological pessimist. Right. But you wouldn't be a philosophical pessimist. So, so we often contrast in psychological terms like a pessimistic person versus an optimistic person. And you've just really well described what a philosophical pessimism is. But what would uh, philosophical optimism look like then? Right. So while philosophical pessimism says that this is the worst possible world, the optimist is the opposite of that. And an optimist would say that this is actually the best of all possible worlds. And that comes from another philosophical figure, which is uh, Leibniz. Um, He is best known for postulating this idea that um, this world, in spite of all the suffering we see, in spite of all the bad things that we see happening around us, um, in spite of all that, this is, at least in God's mind, the best world. There's a reason why bad things happen to individuals, and the reason is in God's mind. 
So overall, although this world might seem bad, it's actually a very, very good one. Not just a good one, the best one possible. So that's optimism. Okay. So that's how it's contrasted with pessimism, which says, which says uh, actually there is no reason to justify all the suffering. Uh, the suffering just is a fundamental feature of existence. Right. And so um, you've told us that the one of the main sort of proponents of um, um, philosophical uh, pessimism is Schopenhauer. Um, can you tell me a little bit about him and where was he from and what time period was he uh, in? Okay, so Arthur Schopenhauer is a German philosopher in the 19th century, and uh, he is, like I said earlier, he is actually the major figure in philosophical pessimism. He is certainly not the first because during uh, in, in, in Greek philosophy there is also a pessimist tradition and there are certain religions that have a pessimistic tradition as well. But Schopenhauer was able to bring all these visions together and give a coherent view uh, to explain why it is the case that this world is the way it is and why it is the case that people suffer and why this is a wretched existence. So that's the major figure. That's the that's the biggest point for Schopenhauer that he was able to present a coherent vision. And what no, I mean I'm sure this is like a hugely complicated thing, but sort of what's the sort of um uh, what's his synthesis of that? Right. So okay, so why did he say that the world is such a terrible place? Um in order to fully understand Schopenhauer, uh, I don't, you have to also understand where his arguments fall within the philosophical tradition. Right. So before Schopenhauer, we have another towering figure in philosophy, which was Immanuel Kant. Mm -hmm. And Schopenhauer is very explicit in saying that his philosophy leaves off where Kant stopped. So with, if we had no Kant, we would have no Schopenhauer. Right. So what exactly is the relation between them? What is it that Kant said that Schopenhauer felt the need to complete? Because Schopenhauer actually thought that Kant got to a certain point, but he should have gotten further. And what is this? Kant said that the world uh, has two aspects to it. The things we perceive, our world as perception, and these perceptions, these objects that we perceive are always necessarily located in space and time. We can point to them, we can individualize them. Um, but all these objects have a fundamental nature which is beyond perception, what he called the thing in itself. Mm -hmm. what the object really is mm -hmm. beyond how you see it. So we can see an object, we can perceive it, but all we can ever say about the object is what we perceive of the object. We cannot say anything about the object beyond its perception. And Kant said, well, it's futile to even talk about what that thing is in itself because we can never have any access to it. And this is where Schopenhauer comes in and he says, well, Kant is wrong because there is a way to access the thing in itself. And what Schopenhauer said was because everything that we see, every object, is but a representation of things. This is why the, the main title of his major work was called The World is Will and Representation, because it has two aspects to it, will and representation. Now my body is also representation. This is what Schopenhauer says, right? My object is a thing that I can perceive just like I perceive the table in front of us, just like I perceive everything. But the difference between the table and another object and my body is that the inner essence of those things outside of my body are indeed forbidden 
to me. I cannot access them. But my body, I can access it through the inside. I can introspect. I can see what it feels like to be a human body mm-hmm. or a human being. And what Schopenhauer did with this is he said, by introspection, we have access to at least one object, which is the body. And when we access the body, we will realize that what is at our fundamental essence is, I will use this uh, tentatively, I'm going to say a force, a kind of force, a kind of energy, um, which is what he called will. So this is why the world is will and representation. So if my body at its essence is will, according to Schopenhauer, it follows that everything that exists in the universe must also be will. Um, So what is the will? It's a wanting, desiring force that its only purpose in existence is to want things. So this is where his whole idea of suffering comes, of eternal striving. So I'm going to just ask a question here because... I, I sort of see where he fills in the gap by um, Kant by saying, well, actually, there is an object that we can know the true meaning of, which is like the body, like ourselves. But I'm confused about how that can then be extended to inanimate objects like table or chair, which don't have like a brain to sort of do that with. Right. So that's very interesting. Here he also, we also have to understand what Kant said before. So the reason Kant thinks that we can never access things in themselves of the objects is because they are beyond time and beyond space. We can't individualize them, right? Because in order to individualize something, to point at something, you have to be able to locate it somewhere in time and space. Now, Kant said the thing itself is beyond time and space. We can't see it. So Schopenhauer said, well, if the thing in itself is beyond time and space, if the thing in itself cannot be individualized, point to it and say it, then according to Schopenhauer, it follows that whatever the thing in itself is, it must be only one thing, one universal thing. Because if I were to say that there are multiple wills, different wills, like I have a will inside me and this table has a different will, What I am postulating, according to Schopenhauer, is there are two wills, two things in themselves. But that can only be possible if the will is in time and space. Mm -hmm. But because the will is not in time and space, it has to be one. So that's why he thinks that whatever is at my essence, whatever it is, it must also be the same thing that is at the essence of everything. So not to sound naive, but does he sort of mean like everything is sort of connected? Like that if you mm-hmm. if you discover like the nature of one thing, you thereby discover everything else. Yes, I think definitely that's part of uh, his okay. argument. Now, if you think about it, right, you know, no, sorry, no, go ahead. But I think you're absolutely on track. So um, so that's the will. Right. What is representation then? Right. So um, representation simply means the objects that we see, how mm. we perceive them. So, for example, a table in front of you has two aspects to it. It has the thing in itself and the representation. The representation is how you see the object, the table, its color, its shape. You can touch it, you can feel it. It's something located in space and time because you can manipulate it. And then there's the uh, the other aspect of that table, which is the will, which is beyond space and time, which is one and the same thing with everything that exists. So this is a very, like you mentioned before, a holistic view of all of existence. At the, at the essence, what Schopenhauer is saying is that everything that exists is fundamentally one same thing. 
and, and and not to get too far into like a like a scientific or technical aspect of this, but this this feels like it it could kind of represent itself in physics as well. Like all objects have a kind of fundamental force between them, sort of like a mass and energy thing. Did did Schopenhauer study a lot of physics, or was he around at I guess the same sort of period as a lot of theoretical physics was was going on and looking at the natural world well i think you're absolutely you're you are absolutely right in pointing that out the parallels that can be drawn between uh schopenhauer and his view of the world as one thing and science right that everything is one fundamental thing uh, all of reality everything that exists has one we share one fundamental reality Right? So Schopenhauer is saying basically the same thing. Now, this goes back. It's, this is not something found only or exclusively in philosophy this, um, or in science. You can, you can trace this idea back to the early Greeks, even the pre-Socratics, mm. which in their own way thought that the world, everything in the world was or water or fire or even atoms that were postulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always this idea that the world is always at the essence. We're all one thing. Well, Schopenhauer's in a very similar way saying exactly the same thing. Everything is one thing. Yeah. His, his, his contribution is to say that that one thing is a striving will. So if that is the case, and I'm Schopenhauer and I've just argued this, if I were Schopenhauer, I would then just sit back and say, well, what am I feeling today? Like, what am I? And then you like prove the universe, I guess. So how does he go from this discovery of, uh, you know, everything uh, has the same will and the only will I can really know is my body. How does he go from that to um, philosophical pessimism then? Right, because this is related to the nature of the will. So whereas uh, in the pre-Socratics, they might postulate that the world is fire or water or atoms or um, whatever the case may be, um, Schopenhauer postulates that the world is will. So it goes back again to trying to understand what it is that what is what it is that the will actually is. So if the will just is simply is desire and want, it's a force that's always striving. That's all it is, according to Schopenhauer. Then everything that exists is just constant wanting and desire but how does he get there like how does he get to the conclusion that it's just want and desire as opposed to something else yeah that's a that's something i was wondering too yes i think um i think this is one of the areas where of course you can have different interpretations and it's up for debate Mm -hmm. but i think what schopenhauer is banking on here is that if you do the exercise he proposes right which is to introspect to get to know what it is that you are at a most fundamental level, you. He thinks you're going to realize that you are, you are driven by a life force, a will that is within you. So you are life. You are, and, and according to Schopenhauer, if you realize that, and we are all able to realize that, then that in and of itself should, should be enough right, to show that the will is want. Now, whether or not, I think that's up for debate, whether or not everybody will look into themselves and mm-hmm. come to the same conclusion as right. Schopenhauer. Uh, but at least he thinks, well, you know, be honest, introspect. Where Descartes said, if you introspect, what you're going to realize is that fundamentally you're a thinking thing, 
when yes, it is, I think, yes. therefore I am. Schopenhauer thinks, well, actually, if you introspect to know your essence, you're not a thinking thing, you're an energy. Mm-hmm. You're a life force. You're a will. Mm-hmm. And that life requires a lot of energy. It constantly requires like food and, and shelter and stability and all these things. It just needs you know, fuel of many, many different types. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'm still I, I still don't get how that means that it's a pessimistic universe though. Because to me, if I want those pancakes and I get those pancakes, that's like the best world possible. So how does he um how does he relate that? Okay, so again this is one of those areas I think where um it, kind of, it very much depends on how you conceive of things. So what Schopenhauer would say is the mere fact that the will wants, or let me put it this way, um, in order to want something, there must be a lack. There must be a need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so therefore, the will springs from a lack, from a need. And this lack and this need is always, according to Schopenhauer anyway, is always a sort of suffering. Mm-hmm. There's a need to be filled. So if you want those pancakes... Why do you want those pancakes? There's a void in you. I mean, this is a very, <laughs> this is a very, you know, simple yes, yes. Uh, example yeah. of pancakes. But of course, you can think about this in other terms, in uh, with other examples. Oh, people yes. want to live. People love. want to write love. People yeah. want things. You know, they want a job. Uh, they want uh, an education. They want good health. They want, um, you know, love. So many things that we want, and we want those things because we don't have them, because we need them. So, according to Schopenhauer, that in itself is enough to show that life springs from a lack, from a need. Mm. And our existence is nothing but a constant search to fill and obtain those needs. And once we get something, again, this is also something you can ask yourselves if this is the way life really is or not, and you can agree or disagree. But Schopenhauer says, you get those pancakes, fine, you might satisfy that need momentarily, but a few minutes after that, you're gonna want something else. Mm. And you're going to get that something else, fine, you might get it, but then you're going to want something else. So this is like the hamster that's caught in the wheel. You're always wanting, always wanting, and you can never be satisfied. So that's where his pessimism comes. So kind of like the natural state is without, basically. Our our natural state is is lacking. That's excellent, yeah. The the inverse of this... Uh, how would that work in regards to suffering? Is is it kind of like the inverse or the optimist version of this is that suffering is is an actually unnatural force, and we're kind of get we kind of get buffeted by suffering, but then our natural state is kind of like a happy bliss. Like, is that kind of how you would view this from the other perspective? No, so I think we, we it's important to we, it, it's important to go back to Leibniz on this. Uh, especially because he's such a big figure within the optimist tradition. So I don't think anybody, no philosopher that's uh, pondering these questions, would deny that there is suffering in the world. And there's all sorts of levels of suffering. You can have a need for a pancake to more serious things, right? We can think of people right. that, that grew up in parts of the world where there's hunger, you know, babies are born and they die in wars, and there's disease. So you have a whole range of of, of, of of desires. So the optimists aren't going to deny that either. It's mm-hmm. not that, you know, they're not going to say, oh, there's no suffering. There is. The difference is in the following, where for Leibniz, he would say, because God is fundamentally good, his question is, well, why does God allow suffering? So he's not denying suffering. He's just asking, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why do people have such a bad time? 
Now, so Leibniz's answer is, well, there's a reason for that, right? This God could have created any world, and he decided to create this one, which includes these terrible things that happen to individuals. But the reason for that is that because God has seen that all this suffering in the end is going to amount to the greatest good possible. Mm. So the best things are going to happen in the end. We can't see it from our own personal point of view. If you were a person that's starving in Africa or some part of the world, uh, Leibniz would say, well, of course you're having a terrible time. You can't, you can't conceive that this is a good world. But believe me, in God's mind, it is. So the optimist, uh, so that's the optimist's answer to suffering. Uh, then comes in Schopenhauer and says, well, this is you know, ridiculous. Suffering is not justified for, it doesn't exist for some superior good. Suffering is irrational. Mm-hmm. It's just a feature of the world. We're destined to always want things. And so, that's what makes it so terrible. So I'm willing to go on board with the Schopenhauer thing. But then what do we do about it? Like, do we just sit back and, you know, accept that this is all crap? Think things are bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do we live amongst this? Yeah, that's such a good question that that's part of uh, the work I'm trying to do now because... Mm-hmm. Uh, I really don't have an answer to that either yet, although I have certain ideas of what to do with his suffering. Um, I think Schopenhauer's final answer is, there's nothing you can do except in order to stop suffering, and here you can see parallels with Buddhism, clearly, is in order to avoid suffering, you have to stop desiring. So if you stop wanting things, you are not going to, you are going to finally escape the cycle, the cycle of eternal desires. Mm. So specifically Schopenhauer admires the ascetics, the ascetics in, in India and even Christian ascetics. Yeah. Right? They, they, they leave all desires, they abandon physical needs. They're not in search of, you know, that pancake. They're not in search of the job. They're not in search of, you know, love. They're not in search of some sort of fulfillment. They abandon everything. Mm-hmm. According to Schopenhauer, these people are immune from suffering. Did Schopenhauer try to do that himself? Uh, no, not that. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. So that's possibly one answer. That's the answer Schopenhauer would offer. Okay. Like if you, and of course that's the the answer that Buddhists also offer, right? Mm-hmm. The four noble truths and the path to end suffering is basically detach yourself from the things, from desires and wants, and this is a way to end it. So I guess in 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 that sense, you can disconnect from this thing that is fundamentally you and fundamentally the universe? Right. So uh, according to Schopenhauer, yes. So within um, Schopenhauer scholarship and all this, there's a a lot of debate around this idea. uh, And and it's not clear that he has provided necessarily a convincing argument, but his argument is what you just said. Basically, there is a way to deny the will and Yes, and that way is to simply turn your back and not heed the the calls for desires and wants. So in that case, uh, what do you what do you become in that case? Because you you are you still become a conscious living thing. Like you you still are a conscious living thing if you're denying all the wills and wants. Um, but I'm interested in how he how he views the ascetics because they are people who exist but they just have some kind of separate form of will that is denying the the want and the desire? Right, so the ascetic is also at a fundamental level pure will, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, the what the, the difference is that the ascetic has understood the nature, the fundamental nature of reality, mm. and through his power of his reason, he is able to twist the will. He is able to overpower the will with his reason. And in this way, he's therefore able to avoid all kind of suffering. So Schopenhauer, for example, thinks that the noblest kind of death, the best kind of death possible, is he gives the example of uh, someone who would, for example, simply stop eating and just wither away. So Schopenhauer thinks that someone that does that is someone that has absolutely denied Isn't that what the will. Um, the Buddha did? Like, didn't he do that under a tree? Am I super Well, the Buddha under the tree was where that's when he came to know the Four Noble Truths. Okay. When he postulated that the world is suffering, that there's a, the suffering has a cause and that there's a way to end suffering. Um, So that's where the parallels come in. I want to know, what do you think is the way to live with Schopenhauer's pessimism? But so I I think this is a working project for me. Mm -hmm. During my during my work here, now before I did write, uh, in, so uh, Spanish is my first language, and I write in Spanish. I only mentioned this bef- because before I came here to do my PhD, I published a uh, a short book mm-hmm. in Spanish on pessimism, and in that book I present the the idea that the best answer to suffering and pessimism is to actually not talk about pessimism at all, which mm-hmm. is totally opposite to what I'm doing now. (laughs) It's a contradiction, right? It's a kind of paradox. But I'm still working on this because I think it's a very good question. What what to do with this once you realize it? Of Um, course, Schopenhauer had his answer, but... Yeah, it's it's almost like a kind of like ignorance is bliss as a a phrase. Does that make sense? Like being able to just kind of ignore the suffering or do you do do need some kind of uh, consciousness of this fact that the world is suffering or does it not really help anything? So you mean to be if someone who's in a state of ignorance and does not know anything about the fundamental nature of the world, you're wondering if that's a better place to be? Yeah. Possibly. Uh, you know, Dostoevsky, he's, uh, he, his novels fall within the existentialist tradition because he kind of touches on these themes. Um, in his short novel, The uh, Notes from the Underground, he, he makes the case that the practical person the person that of action, the person that does things, is actually a stupid person. That's a, that's those are the terms he puts it in, mm-hmm. right? Um, so in a way, why do I mention this? Because I think um, it kind of captures a bit what you were asking, which is okay if you don't think about this too much, and you just live your life and go about your daily things. Sure, you you might be a person of action. You will do things, but on Dostoevsky's account anyway, which is the example I'm giving, you're a person, you know, you're, you don't have any intellectual depth at all. Sure, is there something, is there anything wrong with living that way? I'm, I don't think, I'm not going to judge, but I guess the question still stands, what do we do? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ignacio, for being here and coming on to the show. Thank you so much. Um, we want to know, if anyone wants to learn more about your work, is there any way they can uh, get in contact with you? Well, I use uh, the Twitter and the Academia page, and if anybody looks for me on Twitter, it's my first name, last name with a double A, so it's Ignacio Moya and another A at the end. 
Perfect. Uh, you have been listening to GradCast. This is the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. If you'd like to be involved with the show or be on the show, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. If you would like to listen to us uh, on air, we are on CHRW Radio 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Or if you'd like to listen to our show on the go, you can download our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Select podcasts can also be watched on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. And this episode was with our guest Ignacio Moya and was hosted by me, Nick Hanfield-Jones, and Connor Chato, and produced by Connor Chato. Thanks for listening and have a great night.